Good morning, Grace. I'm Kenny. It's great to be with you this morning. You can turn to Genesis chapter 29, which is where we're going to be in a moment, but um, just a chorus of that song that we just, just sang. That right there is why we're here this morning, not because that describes all of us perfectly. There's no one in this room, none of us, I don't think, who can say 100%, my soul this morning is satisfied in him alone without rival, undivided, that I trust in him, no other. We sing a song like that because that's what we long for. That's what we aspire to. That's where God is calling us. And day by day, week by week as we gather, his spirit is helping move us in that direction. But we can't sing that song this morning in truth, uh, truth about our current state, but we can sing it as an aspiration or as a word of admonishment to ourselves when our souls aren't satisfied in him alone. But we can sing, no, 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 soul. My soul is satisfied in him alone. I love that line. No one in our chapter in Genesis today is saying my soul is satisfied in God alone. That is not what this story is about. Thanks, Travis. You can put that down. This is a story about misplaced worship, idols in the heart, Disordered desire, which is a phrase that Eric used last Sunday, which we'll talk more about in just a bit. But uh, it's a story of envy and competition and rivalry. In fact, I took as our sermon title, I stole this line that uh, Rachel throws out at Jacob, chapter 30, verse 1, as the rivalry is just getting ratcheted up. She says to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. I thought, man, if that doesn't get right at the heart of what God wants to, to, to us to see ourselves in this story, I don't know what does. Give me children or I die. That's a disordered desire. If I can't have children, I can't be happy. I'm unfulfilled. I must have it. So the sermon title, I left a blank so that we could fill in our own. Maybe it's not children. Give me what or I will die. Leah doesn't come right out and say it, but... Leah, in our passage, she wants the love of her husband and for him to attach himself to her and, and show affection and care for her. For Rachel, it's children. But what, what is it for you? Give me this or I'll die. Maybe not to that extreme, but if I can't have that, God, I can't be happy. Maybe it's, it's Father's Day. Maybe it's your dad's approval. Maybe you've never felt that or had that. That's a reasonable expectation. God calls fathers and mothers to love and protect and, 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 and nurture their children. It's not wrong to want that or expect that. Maybe that's something that you feel, if I can't have that, I'll die. Maybe it's your boss's recognition at work. Maybe it's the praise of your colleagues for them to recognize your contribution and, and to make you feel a sense of worth because, because you, you've, you've earned it. Maybe in your blank, you'd put a wife or a husband. Lord, give me a spouse or I'll die. Give me a child, Lord, or I'll die. Lord, give me a house. That might seem kind of petty after some of these other ones, but living in Southern California, I understand. As a young person in your 20s or 30s or 40s, I mean, this is a hard place to, to get out of renting an apartment. And, and, and you might feel like that's the thing, to have a house, a place of my own. 
If you're honest, it's, it's in that blank. God, if you don't provide this for me, I, I don't know if I can be happy. We fill all sorts of things in that blank. And all of those are fine desires, good desires, worthy desires. God says marriage is something we should long for, desire. It's a good blessing given by God. It's a relationship that blesses the, the husband and wife and reflects Christ in the world. It's not wrong to want to be married. But when it's exalted to the ultimate place, the thing that I must have or else, that's a disordered desire. The same is true of parenthood or vocation. It's not wrong for a wife to expect her husband to love and cherish her. And you might not be experiencing that in your marriage. It's not wrong to to expect that. But if that becomes a, if I can't have that God, I can't be happy, then that's where it's a problem. God's providence. I'm preaching on this passage this morning on Father's Day. And this, is, this story is about fertility and infertility. And that's part of my story and Betsy's story. For a couple of years with fertility tra- doctors and treatments, l- trying to get pregnant and, and have children biologically. And I was reminded this week in this story of the last doctor's appointment we had. We went into this last appointment, the last round, and we had decided that after that, the remaining options, sort of treatment options, we weren't comfortable with. And so this was going to be kind of the final one. And we showed up at the appointment. Doctor sat us down. Test was negative again. And so we thanked him. And we were going to leave. And I'll never forget the look on this doctor's face. He was incredulous. He couldn't understand that we were just getting up and leaving because he had other options way for it. And he said, this was his words. He says, I can give you a child. (laughs) And I realized in that moment how many couples he must have sat with that there's this expectation that at whatever cost, whatever means, I must have a child. That's it. He saw that as his job, to fulfill that, that um, inalienable right. And it stopped me. It made me pause and ask, is that my heart? Is that my assumption that, God, I must have or else? And Betsy and I paused before just jumping to the, the next step, the next route to, to being parents, to, to say, wait, maybe that's not the goal. Maybe God has a different plan for us. He'd put Eric and Donna Thomas in our life. And at the time, they didn't have any kids. Now they got four. But um, at the time, they, for many years, had not had children. And God had used them and their, their empty home as a place to be spiritual parents to many college students. And so we paused and said, okay, God might have a good and gracious plan for us that doesn't include this thing that I feel I must have. And I was thankful for that. God helped us see that knee-jerk impulse to, to a disordered desire to make a really good thing, a worthy thing, an ultimate thing. My hope for this sermon this morning, that this story would do two things. God would use it like a mirror to graciously help us recognize how we're no different from these people. We might just substitute in our own disordered desire that, that we struggle with idols and misplaced worship. And secondly, he'd remind us why he alone is worthy of being the only one that fills that blank. That at the end of the day, give me God or I will die. Give me Jesus or I will die. He's the only one without whom truly we will die. So as we dive into this story, I want to remind you of two things. One, all of this, this, you know, ridiculous shenanigans that goes down between Leah and Rachel in this story happens under the canopy of incredible promised blessings. 
By marriage, even though it's less than ideal the way this has come about, and now Leah and Rachel are both married to Jacob, and one is unloved, and the other turns out barren as the story begins, they are part of now this blessing spoken to Jacob that God, he says, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you'll spread abroad to the east, west, north, south and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you. I'll keep you wherever you go and I'll bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. And now Leah and Rachel are enfolded into that same promised blessing of offspring like the dust. And nevertheless, their disordered desires reign and cause all this mess. And we, as Christians, have a Bethel blessing of our own. I mean, God has said very similar things to us now in Christ. I will never leave you or forsake you. I now, with my sovereign omnipotence, are going to work all things together for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purposes. I am for you. I want to bear good fruit in your life. I'm going to show you grace. He says things to us like 1 Peter 1, you are co-heirs with Christ. You have an imperishable inheritance being kept for you until such time as God brings you into that inheritance. And so we can still struggle with the same sort of disordered desires under this amazing canopy of God's promised blessing too. So let's look at this story. It starts in Genesis 29 verse 31. And this story has two levels to it. I want us to start, the first level, sort of down here, is just the level of, it's a story about two sisters who, in envy and discontentment, battle it out with one another over childbearing. So it's a story of envy and rivalry. At another level, though, this is also a story of how God chose to begin to fulfill the Bethel blessing. This is how, I was talking to Fred Sanders after first service. For a long time, it's just like, we're just waiting for one son. We finally get Isaac. And then, okay, now we're just waiting. Well, now we get two sons. Finally, here, we get like 12 sons and a daughter. You know, it's like, now God's getting somewhere. This ugly, messy story is also the way that God began to bring about his blessing that was going to lead all the way down to him sending the one who was going to bless all the world. So let's just work our way through the story first on the level of, of what it's going to show us and, and reveal our hearts in Leah and Rachel and Jacob here. So scene one, I'm going to take this story in three scenes. Scene one is what I think really ratchets up the feelings of envy and rivalry. Scene one is this, the Lord gives four sons to Jacob through Leah alone. Look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated... He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. All right, so the Lord has compassion on Leah. Once again, we see God moving toward the unloved one in mercy and, and, and justice. His heart beats for the one who, who's, who's gotten the raw end of the deal. Even though it was kind of shady the way that Laban put her forward as Jacob's wife, first wife, Nevertheless, now she's hated, unloved, set aside uh, for the sake of Rachel, who was loved. And God chooses her and blesses her and opens her womb. And we're told here again, right at the beginning, God is sovereign over the womb. Through this whole chapter, God gives children, God withholds children. Whatever ways in which they're going to go about trying to have children, God is sovereign. Verse 32. 
And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. So she wants a son, but she really wants Jacob's love. And she names him Reuben, which means see a, see a son. I mean, you can picture her presenting this firstborn son to Jacob, thinking, ah, this'll do it. But there's a lot between the lines of each of these verses. Time passes. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he's given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. So turns out she's still hated, unloved. That firstborn son didn't change Jacob's feelings toward her at all. And she names the second son Simeon, which sounds like heard. And it shows she's praying to the Lord for a child and, and God is answering through Simeon and, and, and he's heard my prayer. Maybe this time uh, Jacob will love me. Verse 34, times passed. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. And therefore his name was called Levi. So son number two didn't move Jacob's heart toward her at all either. So now Levi is named, Levi sounds like attached, maybe the hope that three is gonna be the the magic number here. The third son maybe will finally win the heart of my husband. But we get to verse 35 and it's clear, nothing's changed. She conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, which sounds like praise. I think the writing's on the wall for Leah at this point. There's no more reference to maybe Jacob will, maybe my husband will. At this time, I think she's resigned. No number of sons is going to change that. Rachel's the loved one. And she praises God. God had smiled on Leah. Even though she doesn't have the love of her husband, she has four sons. And in fact, we know Levi and Judah, two of her sons, are, Levi is going to be the one through whom Moses and Aaron and the priestly tribe is going to come. And God's going to use that tribe as the priests in Israel, um, centering the worship around and leading the people in worship. And Judah will be the one through whom King David comes and ultimately Jesus comes. And so God, in the beginning of this story, shows mercy on Leah and blesses her um, as the unloved one with these four sons. And at the end of 35, though, it says she ceased bearing. Now, notice this. Look in verse 31. It specifically says Leah um, was hated and God opened her womb, but in 31, it doesn't say, and then he closed her womb. It just says she ceased bearing. So it might be that that God closed her womb. It, It could be that Jacob just became cut off to her. Later on in verse 15, we're going to see that Rachel at some point basically held the keys to whose tent Jacob sleeps in. And so it could be here as we get to the end, she ceased bearing not because God had made her physically unable to have children, maybe, but maybe it's just that um, she's cut off to Jacob at this point. She's not going to have any more children. But either way, end of scene one, Leah, four sons, Rachel, zero. And now the competition begins. Look at chapter 30, verse 1 through 13. The first sort of round of competition is carried out through servants. They each put their servant forward for Jacob so that maybe um, more sons will come. And so they compete through their servants. It kind of comes in two scenes, but I think that they they sort of go together. They're the first round of competition. So verse 1, when Rachel saw 
that she bore Jacob no children. Notice the focus there. It's not just when she saw that she couldn't have children, but that she wasn't able to provide sons for Jacob. It's not just, uh, she says she envied her sister. Not just envy that Leah could be a mother and have children, but that Leah could provide Jacob with sons. Later on at the end of the story, uh, she refers to, she uses the word reproach. God's taken away my reproach. This is part of the issue. She doesn't want the reproach, the status, the stigma of being unable to provide a son for her husband who loves her. And so she envies her sister, which is ironic because she's the good-looking one, we were told, right? We never read, Leah envied Rachel because she was beautiful in form and appearance. Probably happened. (laughs) But here we're told she envies her sister. She has the very thing Leah desperately wants, and she's utterly unhappy. But does she turn to God in prayer? No. She comes to Jacob and says, give me children or I shall die. It almost sounds like it's his fault. Why aren't you giving me children? I mean, he could have said, well, I already have four. I mean, so, you know, (laughs) it's not me. And it's kind of what he does. Very thoughtlessly, he just fires back. Look the way he says. His anger was kindled against Rachel. And he says, am I in the place of God who's withheld uh, from you the fruit of the womb? Man, that's a jab. Because we know, theologically, that's true. The Lord has withheld. Her barrenness, God is sovereign over that. But he uses that like a weapon and hurls that at her. Essentially says, not my fault. Take it up with God. And she fires right back and makes a bad situation worse. Jacob's already married to two women, not God's intended design for marriage. And it's not working out very well for him. And now she says, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. Not really as a wife, just as a tool, right? This woman is just going to be a surrogate. It's never going to be her child all along. This child, so even I may have children through her. She becomes a, a means to, to Rachel's end, the servant less than a person in her sight. And look at Jacob here. He's, he's not looking great. No word of protest. No drawing the line. Sorry, this is not going to happen. We're not going to do it this way. He just goes along with it. Verse 5. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bill had conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I've wrestled with my sister and I've prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. So notice after Dan is born, in her mind, she thinks God is vindicating me. God's, God endorses this thing, or I just give my servant over to Jacob. Now a third woman in the mix to have a baby. She takes it as God's um, vindication. God's judged me, and she, he's heard my voice. He's given me a son. I think what she says after Naphtali is born is more honest. With mighty wrestlings, I've wrestled with my sister, and I've won. That's really what this seems to be about. Look at verse 9. Leah gets involved in the competition. When Leah saw that she'd ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a a wife. Maybe it happened after, you know, Zilpah, Bill has two children and now Leah, but it says when Leah saw that she'd ceased bearing children, which 
we're told at the end of chapter 29. So I wonder if these things maybe aren't kind of happening simultaneously, tit for tat, you know. So Leah has had four, and now Rachel says, give me a child. Okay, here's Bilhah. And now Leah realizes, wow, I'm, I'm not going to have children. So, okay, two can play at that game. And she goes about the same thing, and she gives her servant, verse 10, Zilpah, to Jacob. And, Jacob, uh, and she bore Jacob a son. Verse 11, and Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. By the way, Jacob doesn't speak up again here and doesn't finally put his foot down. He goes along with this too. So now there's four uh, women in the mix. Verse 12, Leah's serpent Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Her comments are very different here than in the first four sons, aren't they? The first four are Godward. They're acknowledging prayer and, and, and thanksgiving to God for giving a blessing. These two sound much more petty, and neither of them directly reference God. They sort of boil down, here's my paraphrase, lucky me with the first one. Good fortune has come. And the second one is, well, happy am I. Or not really that. Not, not God has smiled on me. Other women are smiling on me which surely was a dig to Rachel who felt the reproach of still. She's not born one son to Jacob. It struck me, God clearly isn't endorsing giving these uh, servants over to be surrogates. This is not God's plan. He could have just closed the wombs of Bilhah and Zilpah and made it clear as well, right? Why not just make it clear? Don't let Rachel vindicate herself and think, yeah, God's smiling on me for doing this. Why didn't he just... But I think we need to realize God giving success does not automatically mean God endorses the means or that God endorses the motivation here. It's not the last time in Genesis that we're going to see this. Joseph one day is going to say to his brothers who sold him into slavery and lied and said he was killed by an animal to their father, what you meant for evil, you had evil intention, motivation, and means God meant for good. God brings about his good plans at times, not just in spite of, but through the very sinful and messed up ways we go about getting what we want. So I don't think we should assume, or Rachel should have assumed, that just because Bilhah or Zilpah, they had children, God must be smiling on this. I wonder if God wasn't graciously helping Rachel see that what she desperately thought would bring her happiness wouldn't. That's what she thought, right? Okay, I can't give him children, but, but Bilhah can give children, and then, then the stigma will be removed. But guess what? Two sons later, and she's still not happy. She's still unfulfilled. Just pause, thinking about what, what we put in our blank. Maybe, maybe money and stuff is in your blank. Having, having lots of stuff, either the security of it or the, the pleasure of it. And maybe you're doing pretty well financially. Don't assume that God's endorsing greed, materialism, and the pursuit of that as your end. Maybe God is graciously allowing you some time to recognize that's just a broken cistern. And eventually you'll realize, no, that's not able to, to, to pay off as the one thing that will give me happiness. I think we see this with Rachel. Her servant provides two sons for Team Rachel, and she's still unhappy. And Leah still isn't loved by Jacob either. 
So they still don't have the thing that they want. Second round of competition, verse 14. Rachel and Leah compete some more to provide sons for Jacob, this time through mandrakes and prayer. Verse 14. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah, a plant that they believed had some sort of powers to, to make women have children. And uh, obviously, Rachel and Leah both believed this. Somehow they might do for us what God is not doing. Because as Reuben, the oldest son, is bringing them to Ra- Leah, Rachel sees him and, 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 and barters to have them, right? So she says to Leah, give me some of your son's mandrakes. And Leah says to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, well, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. It's like reality TV. Ugly. I mean, clearly at this point, I think when Leah says, is it enough that you've taken away my husband? I don't think it means you've won his heart because Leah never had that in the first place. That wasn't, didn't need to be taken away. I think literally you've taken away my husband. If she's the one who can permit her one night to sleep with Jacob, then clearly Rachel holds the keys and Leah has been consigned to a place cut off from her husband. And it's clear that she's been praying. We're going to see in verse 7 here a minute. But they they sort of conduct this this gross transaction. Okay, you can have the the fertility treatment sort of plants, but I get one night with Jacob. Sort of sets the stage. Okay, so now who's going to win, mandrakes or God, right? Verse 16, Jacob comes in from the field. Oh, I, I read that part. Verse 17, God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Sorry, just go back to my page here. Jacob's basically become a stud for hire in the story at this point. It's sad. It's not, we, I grew up with that word, hey, you're such a stud. That's not a compliment, guys. That means he's just now being used by these two wives for them to get what will satisfy them. And he's again just sort of a silent in the background um, being used. But God listened to Leah and gave Jacob a fifth son. Verse 18, God has given me my wages, she says, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. And so she called his name Zebulun. So again, though, here it says God listened to Leah. And with the first son, she she seems to think that God's, she says, God's given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. Uh, Verse 17 doesn't seem to imply that that's God's motivation. God listened to Leah. It seems Leah, again, is in the uh, position of being taken advantage of. She's cut off from her husband. And God, in his mercy, makes it very clear, I'm the one who gives children. So Rachel, with her mandrakes, still ends up childless. Leah, with answers to prayer, gives two more sons to Jacob. And then verse 21, afterwards she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. And we'll come back to her sad story in a few chapters, chapter 34. Finally, verse 22, it says, Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. 
It doesn't come right out and say it, but it seems that Rachel is finally beginning to turn here a little bit. She doesn't credit the mandrakes. Well, the mandrakes worked, but she acknowledges God has remembered me, listened to me, and taken away my reproach. God has shown mercy and given me another son. And she prays one final prayer here in this, in this scene. May the Lord add to me another son, which ironically the Lord would do in a couple of chapters, but she's going to die in childbirth with Benjamin. So she will bear a second son, but that'll end her life. This is a sad story, isn't it? That's the end of our story. There's not a happier paragraph after this that we get to land on it. It's just a story about mess. Remember, I said this has two levels, this story. And at this just ugly, messy level, it helps us hopefully recognize our own disordered desires and misplaced worship and how destructive it is. It separates us from God. It turns our hearts away from God. And it just creates a relational mess. And it's self-destructive. Envy and coveting grow out of disordered desire. Because whatever we put in that blank that we must have or else, someone else is going to have it. And when they do, we're going to resent the fact that they do and we're going to envy and we're going to covet and we're going to desire. It's going to change the way we treat one another. I realized this week, I tend to think of envy as sort of a softer sin. I mean, it's sin, but sort of this internal, you know, I'm daydreaming about, oh, I wish I had with that. And so it's, I'm not proud of it, but it's not that bad. But man, in the New Testament, every time you get a list of like the really biggies, all those things, the Bible says, you know, it's evidence of unrighteousness and works of the flesh. It's always in the list. Often it's sandwiched between the things we think are the biggies, like Galatians 5, immorality, sorcery, orgies, drunkenness, oh, and envy. Ephesians 5 says, you may be sure of this, everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or who's covetous, that is, an idolater, Paul says, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You know what separates us from God? Sexual immorality. You know what else? Covetousness. Why? Because it's essentially idolatry. It's turning away from God as our deliverer and our provider and our greatest treasure and taking other things he made and propping them up in that place and then bowing down to them and saying, make me happy. And not only does that separate us from God, but then as we see example here, it just destroys human relationships. When envy enters in, people become the means to our ends They're just good for getting us to the thing that we want. Or they become obstacles to our desires that we step on and we compete with or we get out of the way. Or people can even become vending machines themselves. It's not about them. It's about what they give me. We're a mess. Envy is a mess. But thankfully, the story has this other level that it's not just sort of a, a story of the skeletons in Jacob, Leah, and Rachel's closet. But it's also told to us because it's telling God's story. This is how God is beginning to bring about his Bethel blessing. This is how he's going to make offspring like dust who are going to become a great nation through whom one day Messiah is going to come. And we get little hints of it here, even in in the sons. 
As we hear Levi's name and Judah's name, Judah, one day Jesus is going to come in that line, born of David, born of Judah, and he's going to be the king, the rightful king, God's anointed Messiah. As we hear Levi's name, it reminds us one day Jesus is going to come and he is going to be our great high priest. He's going to do away with any need of any priests at all anymore to offer any sacrifices because he himself is going to lay his life down once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, and bring us to God and take away our reproach. And as incredible as it might seem to us that God can use and bring his redemptive plan move forward through the mess of two sister wives infighting over childbearing, how much more incredible is it the evil plans that God uses to bring about our salvation through Jesus? I mean, it's a story, the cross is a story of uh, murderous religious leaders who ought to have embraced Jesus as Messiah and instead were threatened by him, envied his influence, were jealous of his power, unwilling to relinquish their status, and plotted to kill him, and pressured Pilate and incited crowds to yell, crucify him, and turn against their Savior and put him on a cross. And through all of that ugliness, God wasn't endorsing all that, But nevertheless, through it, he was bringing about his plan to bless all the nations through Jesus. And so now what Jesus does at the cross speaks a word to us that I think has the power of reordering our desires and making God our greatest treasure. Because the cross, unlike anything else God has done, shows us the glory and the beauty and the grace and kindness of God our Redeemer. The cross shows us God's beauty. I read this this week by Tim Keller. Just this one sentence I want us to think about here as we're closing. To sense God's beauty in the heart, not just to know something true about God, but to to apprehend the glory and the beauty, the desirousness of God. That's what he's saying. To sense God's beauty in the heart is to have such pleasure in him that you rest content. That's one way that what Jesus does for us at the cross, I think, rescues us from disordered desire. Not only does it pay the guilt of all of our disordered desire, but then it displays for us the beauty of God and the beauty of Christ that ought to lead us to say, give me Jesus or I'll die. Travis, can you put back up the the last verse we sang earlier? I love the the way we sing this. It says, two wonders here. Two wonders here that I confess. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper as we finish this morning. As a, a visual symbol of the body that Jesus gave for us in our place and the blood of his that was shed one time, never to be done again, that covers all of our sin. And what I want us to remember as we're partaking of this in just a few minutes, these two wonders here that we confess, my worth and my unworthiness. The unworthiness is what makes it even a greater wonder that we have worth in God's sight. It's amazing. As unworthy as we are, we all had abandoned God. We had all forgotten him. We all have our disordered desires and put other things in his place. Nevertheless, God now through Christ sees us of great worth. We're precious to him. 
But that worth here, this, this song tells us, my value is fixed and my ransom was paid at the cross. That's why I am both unworthy and at the very same time worthy in God's sight because of Christ. And so that's why we can sing this chorus. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I'll trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Jesus, we rejoice in you this morning as our Redeemer. Thank you that uh, you gave yourself for us. God, we praise you for your sovereignty and your, your wisdom and this gospel plan that seems foolish to the world, the message of the cross, but which is actually um, our salvation. Thank you for, uh, Holy Spirit, for giving us eyes to see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, for giving us faith, for drawing us to yourself. God, I pray that this morning we leave here, uh, leave this place uh, with you as our great treasure. In Jesus' name, amen.